Welcome back to another Evening Under Lamplight podcast with Robert Louis Abrahamson. We're at episode 11 in series 9, the series where we attend to some of the stories from Ovid's collection of myths, The Metamorphoses. Today we're attending to the story of Pygmalion, a story many people know about, but now it's time to attend a little more closely. The story is often given a title including the names of both Pygmalion and Galatea, the woman he comes to love, but in Ovid's version she's not given a name. We call her Galatea only from other versions of the myth. Pygmalion is caught, we might say, between art and the person depicted in the art. He confuses a statue with a real woman. He's caught in that space between, a sacred space where we can abandon our reasoning and make room for a moment of grace to come upon us. Or to put it another way, Pygmalion finds himself in what Richard Rohr calls that in-between space where you are not in control and God is, or, or rather in this case where the goddess Venus is in control. In Pygmalion's case, he abandons reason and loses control because, well, because, as Ted Hughes says, he has become slightly mad. Let's see what the story tells us. Our story takes place on the island of Cyprus, an island dedicated to Venus, the goddess of love and beauty and all kinds of attraction. In assigning a goddess to love, beauty, and attraction, the Greeks were acknowledging that there was something divine, something sacred, about love, beauty, and attraction. That means there is something valuable in these attributes for what they are in themselves, and not valuable for what use we can make of them. We enter into the sacred space of love, beauty, attraction when we move beyond our own immediate ego vision, and allow ourselves to participate in something larger than ourselves and our mundane considerations. But alas, this is just what certain people on Cyprus did not do. The Propetides, presumably some group of Cyprian women, denied the divinity of Venus. That's the mythic way of saying that these women saw love, beauty, and attraction only as tools they could use for their own purposes. Venus looked down at them and was outraged at their blasphemy, and she punished them by turning them into whores, people who profane the divinity by prostituting their love-making, their beauty, their attractions, turning these gifts into tools to bring them money. They exemplify prostitution in its larger sense, too, that is, any use of love-beauty attractions for personal, self-centered ends rather than acknowledging that these things are special and to be treated with reverence. And then comes a transformation. As shame retreated and their cheeks grew hard, they turned with little change to stones of flint. These women, denying the divinity of love and using their attractions for personal gain, had hearts of stone and turning into stone themselves just illustrated what they had already been like. After this preliminary episode, Ovid pivots into Pygmalion's part of the story. He too was an inhabitant of Venus's island of Cyprus, but he was so appalled by the way the Propetides behaved that he felt revulsion towards all women. This is the first step in the madness that will inflict Pygmalion. He transfers his disgust at these women to a disgust for all women, 
Here's how Ted Hughes tells it, elaborating on Ovid's text, adding that bit about the spider, for instance. The spectacle of these cursed women sent Pygmalion the sculptor slightly mad. He adored women, but he saw the wickedness of these particular women transform, as by some occult connection, every woman's uterus to a spider. Her face, voice, gestures, hair became its web. Her perfume was a floating horror. Her glance left a spider bite. He couldn't control it. Oh, he couldn't control it, eh? Well, that's a sign that we are in some other region, isn't it? Something is working upon him. He's destined either for destruction or glory. He's either going to be one of those men who are so afraid of women's power that he spends his life suppressing and oppressing women, or he passes through the fires of this revulsion to be transformed into something purer. Revolted in this way, Pygmalion lived alone, without women. As a kind of substitute or replacement for real women, Ovid says he carved an ivory statue of an ideal woman, more beautiful than ever woman born. Ted Hughes embellishes this moment again by adding a kind of incubus, or disembodied spirit, into the story, who comes to Pygmalion in a dream and takes possession of him, as sometimes happens with obsessed people. He dreamed, Hughes says, unbrokenly, awake as asleep, the perfect body of a perfect woman, though this dream was not so much the dream of a perfect woman as a spectre, sick of unbeing, that had taken possession of his body to find herself alive. She moved into his hands. She took possession of his fingers and began to sculpt a perfect woman. So he watched his hands shaping a woman as if he were still asleep, until life-size, ivory, as if alive, her perfect figure lay in his studio. So this is Ted Hughes' addition to Ovid's story. Nothing wrong with adding to the basic myth. And here he adds something a little spooky, something that in fact seems to portray accurately what happens with artistic creation. This spectre, an unbodied being longing for a body, takes over Pygmalion's hands, but perhaps only because he was already walking around in a dream state, awake or asleep, as Hughes puts it. In other words, there he is in that in-between space, open to the movement of grace. His obsession about the perfect woman fed this spectre, this hidden part of himself, which in turn fed his creativity, which in turn directed his hands as he carved the ivory. His act of creation was not deliberate. His conscious, rational self stood back and let this other part of himself, represented by the spectre, hungry for embodiment in the work of art, take over. That spectre can be seen as the disembodied germ of an idea, an idea for creation, or for a scientific breakthrough, or even for something mundane like a new way to arrange the furniture. The spectre desires to be incarnated, given a body, as, as all creative ideas bring with them the impulse to be incarnated, to be brought into physical being, as a work of art, or a scientific theory, or, or the technology arising from new scientific insights, 
or even the changed look of a room. And as for Pygmalion, his openness to that spectre, who disappears from the story now, enabled him to carve a perfect piece of sculpture. So perfect, in fact, that poor Pygmalion, in such a confused state of consciousness, fell in love with the statue. He was, as we've said, on the verge of madness, and now he seems really out of his mind. He, he kisses the statue, hoping for a kiss in return. He speaks to the statue. He presses her arm to feel the flesh he imagines is there, and then draws back in fear, lest he bruise her skin. He buys her gifts that he thinks she will like, and drapes her in expensive, luxurious clothing with rings, necklaces, and other jewels. No, no, wait, he says, she looks more beautiful naked, so he takes off all these things. He lays the statue on the bed, but makes sure to cushion it with pillows so she'll not hurt her head. <laughs> what do we make of this? John Marston, who wrote an erotic Elizabethan version of this story, implies that Pygmalion was trying to bribe the, sta was trying to bribe the statue to give him what he wanted, that is, her body. He performs all the wanton love tricks in the book, whereby, Marston says, whereby he thought he might procure the love of this dull image which no plaints could move. He's playing an odd kind of seduction game. But surely this is, as we saw earlier, a, a kind of denial of the divinity of love. Here is just lustful greed, playing all the standard love games for its own satisfaction. Another response to this situation is found in Carol Ann Duffy's feminist poem, Pygmalion's Bride. Pygmalion here becomes the image of those men who think they can control women. Like Henry Higgins in George Bernard Shaw's play Pygmalion, they think they know how to shape a woman into the image they desire, but they have no idea. Well, here's Carol Ann Duffy's poem, spoken from the woman's point of view, whose aversion to the man's moves turns her, only metaphorically, into a cold statue. As we'll see in a minute, the statue in the myth becomes warm and soft, and the poem uses this transformation in its own unexpected way. Cold I was, like snow, like ivory. I thought he will not touch me, but he did. He kissed my stone-cool lips. I lay still as though I'd died. He stayed. He thumbed my marbled eyes. He spoke, blunt endearments, what he'd do and how. His words were terrible. My ears were sculpture, stone-deaf shells. I heard the sea, I drowned him out, I heard him shout. He brought me presents, polished pebbles, little bells. I didn't blink, was dumb. He brought me pearls and necklaces and rings. He called them girly things. He ran his clammy hands along my limbs. I didn't shrink, played statue, stumm. He let his fingers sink into my flesh. He squeezed, he pressed. I would not bruise. He looked for marks, for purple hearts, for inky stars, for smudgy clues. His nails were claws. I showed no scratch, no scrape, no scar. He propped me up on pillows, jawed all night. My heart was ice, was glass. His voice was gravel, hoarse. He talked white, black. 
So I changed tack, grew warm like candle wax, kissed back, was soft, was pliable, began to moan, got hot, got wild, arched, coiled, writhed, begged for his child, and at the climax screamed my head off, all an act. And haven't seen him since. Simple as that. In this version, the woman gives the man just the thing he's most afraid of, the threat of a true relationship. She responded to him, or, or rather she pretended to. That was enough to frighten away this male version of the propitities. But in our podcasts, we tend to take a different view of these myths, putting aside the sexual politics and seeing what we might call the spiritual aspects of the story. We haven't quite finished the tale. Here's what happens next. It's the day of celebration for Venus, a huge annual festival for the whole island of Cyprus to come together and offer sacrifices to Venus. Pygmalion comes along too. He's, he's too bashful, or perhaps ashamed, to pray to Venus to give him his statue for a bride, so he prays instead that she give him a bride just like his statue. But Venus sees into his heart and knows what he really wants. The flames on the altar rise up three times, a sure sign that the goddess has granted his prayer. Of course Venus grants his prayer. She has seen that he is a true devotee, adorning the statue out of love, wanting the statue to look its best, not out for himself, but concerned only with the statue. Is this the artist fussing to make the work of art as perfect as possible? Or is it the lover, focused only on the beloved? Or both, of course. Pygmalion comes home and goes immediately to the statue, as he always does when he comes home, and kisses it hello and caresses it to see if it is still okay. Or wait, let's hear Ted Hughes. Pygmalion hurried away home to his ivory obsession. He burst in, fevered with deprivation, fell on her, embraced her, and kissed her like one collapsing in a desert to drink at a dribble from a rock. But his hand sprang off her breast as if stung. He lowered it again, incredulous at the softness, the warmth under his fingers, warm and soft as warm, soft wax, but alive with the elastic of life. He knew, giddy as he was, with longing and prayers, this must be hallucination. He jerked himself back to his senses and prodded the ivory. He squeezed it, but it was no longer ivory. Her pulse throbbed under his thumb. Then Pygmalion's legs gave beneath him. On his knees he sobbed his thanks to Venus. A self-centered lover would have taken the credit for having created this figure who came to life, or for having been so persuasive to the goddess, but Pygmalion is a true worshipper of Venus, and knows that the image of beauty in his mind becomes incarnate, whether in art or in life, only through the grace of love divine, and he thanks Venus. And in contrast to the propitities, living women who turn to stone, here the stone turns into a living woman. The magic of love has created new life for the woman. And it must be that at this point he gives the statue the name Galatea, which means milk white. Uh-oh. <laughs> As though this story didn't have problems enough, it has to be about white skin. And also, since remember the statue was made from ivory, 
it rests upon the abusive trade in animal tusks, we modern readers are then challenged to see how much these cultural issues can disturb our reading of the myth. Can we hold on to all of these different ways of reading at the same time? And so we leave the story of Pygmalion and Galatea, the true lover bringing the beloved to life, like the prince in Sleeping Beauty, or like any of us when we give our attention to someone else for that person's own sake, for what would be best for that person, rather than using the person for our own ends. We all know that this is the way to bring someone into life, to bring a sparkle into the other person's eye. <laughs> but we need stories to give us images that will remind us of the beauty of this kind of selfless love. Come back next time for another story, another set of images to remind us of, well, we'll see what that's like when we get there. See you then.